You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. Thanks for being here. This is week number four, uh, and I'm going to try to get through a pretty good chunk of history tonight, hitting the high spots. Um, uh, but before we do that, let's pray, ask God's blessing on our time together. So God, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for, um, Lord, your word, which is our, uh, rule for faith and for conduct. But Lord, also we thank you for, uh, the testimony of your people throughout history God, we thank you for the record that we have of the ways in which you have guarded and guided the church. So, Lord, I pray that as we look back through history, we would see both the ways in which your people have faltered so that we might avoid those same mistakes and the ways in which your church has prospered and honored you well and help us to follow in those examples. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, imagine that it was a cold night in Egypt in the 4th century. Uh, There's a man named Anthony, and he was a revered monk uh, during the 4th century in Egypt. And the story goes that he was earnestly laboring in prayer. He was uh, up late at night praying, and he looks up and notices that wild animals have surrounded him on every side and are threatening to attack him. Uh, But in the face of that, Anthony is filled with a sudden boldness, and he looks at these wild animals and says, if you have received power over me from the Lord, then draw near and do not delay, for I am ready for you. But if you have made ready and come at the command of Satan, get back to your places without tarrying, for I am a servant of Jesus the Conqueror. And at the sound of the name of Jesus, the animals disperse and Satan is driven away like a sparrow before a hawk. Um, That story comes from a book called The Life of St. Anthony, uh, which was a biography written by Athanasius, uh, who we talked about a little bit last week. Uh, And Athanasius wrote about uh, Anthony, this revered Egyptian monk, while Athanasius was exiled. In fact, he lived with Anthony for a while during one of his exiles. And so he comes back with these stories about Anthony's exploits. Uh, Bruce Shelley, who's a historian, he said that Anthony uh, is an example and really becomes kind of the model for a new kind of Christian hero. So up until, um, up until Constantine the Emperor Constantine, up until he made Christianity legal, and then, of course, it eventually becomes the uh, the official um, religion of the Roman Empire. Up until that point, the martyrs had been the people that they had looked at as heroes of the faith, right? They had defied um, the Roman government, and even in the face of death, whether it was by 
you know, burning at the stake or by being fed to wild animals or, you know, but they had uh, stood firm for Christ even in the face of death. And so those folks, those martyrs had been held up as heroes of the Christian faith up until this point in history. But what happens in this point in history is when Christianity becomes legal, well, there's no martyrs anymore, right? They're not killing Christians anymore. And so uh, along with that, there's corruption that starts to enter the church because when Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, then the offices of pastors and bishops and those kinds of things essentially become government jobs. So then there's a, they become desirable positions. And so people who are seeking power and people who may not necessarily be following Jesus uh, for certainly for the right reasons, if you can call that following Jesus at all, right? Uh, buy their way, so to speak, into these positions within the church. And so that gives rise to a movement of monasticism, right? Monks who would separate themselves out from society, go and live in the desert, go and live, you know, in... And so these monks, these, these kinds of folks like Anthony, um, become kind of a new model for what it means to follow Jesus um, and, and to be the model Christian. So uh, Bruce Shelley said this, he said, the model Christian was no longer the courageous bishop dragged before wild beasts in a Roman arena. He was now a lonely hermit in the forsaken Egyptian desert defying the devil. So, so up, like I said, up until this point, martyrs had really been uh, the folks that had been looked to as examples of spirituality and maturity in Christ and all those kind of things. And now that's beginning to shift. So the earliest monks, so then, like I said, so monasticism begins to rise in the church, this era uh, where monks become uh, prevalent and prominent in the church. And the earliest monks were hermits. In fact, the word monk comes from the Greek word uh, monikos, which means solitary. And so even the word monk comes from this idea of got people who were going and living alone. And so they were trying to escape the harsh realities of the decaying Roman Empire. And so they retreated into the Egyptian desert um, to live lives free from material possessions. So that's one of the things that as, as Christianity uh, kind of big is more enmeshed in Roman culture and society as it's more becomes more... Uh, you know, I, maybe, I don't know if buddy-buddy is the right kind of word, but, you know, as, as it's more intertwined with Roman high society, well, then um, wealth becomes a prominent thing as well. And so bishops and folks like that start to become very wealthy. They run around with the Roman elite, that kind of thing. And so it makes sense then that those who were opposed to that corruption would withdraw from that and, and go and seek to serve Christ in a different way, uh, in a way that was free from what they, you know, what they viewed and saw, and rightfully so, as corruption. And so it was the love of money and the love of material things, they believed, that had brought a lot of that corruption in. And so if we go and we live in the desert and live a life without material possessions, then we can escape that 
some of those temptations and we can escape some of those things, the corruption that comes along with that. So many monks were motivated by the desire to gain mastery over the flesh by depriving the flesh of what it desires. And there's some biblical support for those kind of ideas. And we even have, we continue some of those types of practices like, you know, fasting, for example, would be one of those things where it's like we're going to deprive the, the body, the physical desires, so that then we might draw near to God. So that we, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you can find it in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, they also focused on the fact that Jesus uh, had said that there would be no marriage in heaven, and so then they would not marry. So many monks were also, like I said, disillusioned with the corruption in the church. Um, since the church had been brought under the state and pastors essentially became government employees, many of the people who became priests and bishop, uh, bishops really lacked integrity or any spiritual maturity. Um, so... In the past, up until this point, right, Christian ministers had been willing to lay down their lives for the truth. Um, that there was one commentator during that time, Gregory of Nazianus, who um, he said this, he's quoted as saying this, the chief seat is now gained by doing evil, not by virtue. And the bishop's seats belong not to the more worthy, but to the more powerful. And so that was kind of the prevailing thought at the time, and it turned a lot of people off. Uh, and these things aren't uncommon, right? I mean, even today, you hear people who are turned off by some of, some of the abuses and the corruption that creeps up in the church, you know, pastors with private jets and, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, that's, that's not a new phenomenon. It didn't just start happening you know, in 20th century America, these kinds of things, uh, well, because our hearts are wicked, right, we tend toward these things. It's not new. And the, the beautiful thing is that there has always been within the church a remnant that would say, that would be willing to stand up, so to speak, and speak truth to power and say, no, that's not the way it ought to be. And the church should be and has been throughout history and should continue always to be reformed. You know, we look at the Great Reformation, and, and we'll get to that hopefully next week some. Um, but we look at the Great Reformation, and we go, yeah, that was, you know, but it, that should be a constant thing. We should always be examining our hearts as individuals, our churches as institutions, and going, what is, it that, what is it that we're doing well that's honoring to Christ, that's faithful to his word? And, and maybe where are, some, where are some ways and where are some things in which we've maybe gotten, gotten off the path a little bit that we need to go, hey, wait a minute, that's, I don't think we should be doing that. Let's, let's be willing to examine this. Let's be open to critique. Let's be open to rebuke. Let's be open to you know, the, the spirit of God saying, hey, this is not my will and my desire. Uh, and so anyway, I, I think it can be encouraging for us when we look at that and say, you know what, these are not new things. Uh, and so how has the church responded to this in history? And one of the ways, obviously, in, in this time in history that they responded to this kind of corruption was to withdraw from that and go, you know what, we're not going to engage in that kind of uh, material kind of lifestyle because we don't believe it honors God. So many of the early monks developed a reputation for holiness and wisdom. Uh, even miracles were reported around them. They often developed large followings of people who moved into nearby caves in order to live near them. 
And slowly, monasticism grew from this kind of thing that a few quirky guys were doing into a movement. And so uh, it started more in the East with Anthony, uh, who, I, who I'm, you know, Athanasius wrote about, who kind of started this whole thing. Uh, and for him, the story in which Jesus tells the rich young ruler, the young man, when Jesus tells him to sell everything and give it to the poor, that made a deep impact on Anthony. And so that's exactly what he did. Um, he sold everything he had. He provided for his sister. Uh, so he sold all his possessions to get, and gave them to the poor. And then he moved into the desert. And for a while, he lived in an abandoned cemetery, um, where according to Athanasius writing, of course, you know, he lived with Anthony, and so this would have come directly from Anthony, but Athanasius said that he lived in an abandoned cemetery where he wrestled with sexual temptation, with wild beasts, and visions of harassing from demons. Um, and during this period, he only survived due to the kindness of strangers. So, like, whatever people gave him is all that he subsided on. Uh, but he would, that was kind of the beginning of that. And then, like I said, people would begin to, uh, began to follow these monks and come to try and live near them in the desert. And so it began to grow and eventually spread into the West. It began in the East, but it began to spread into the West. Athanasius, after his time uh, living with uh, Anthony, uh, he actually went back to Alexandria, where he was from, for a short time, but then was exiled again, and he was exiled into the West uh, in what is now modern-day Germany and Italy. And during that period of time, he introduced monasticism in the West. Uh, so, but there were some a lot of differences. I say a lot. There were noticeable differences between Western monasticism and Eastern monasticism. So in the West... Um, monastic life was more communal. So rather than being these solitary people who would live alone, um, monks in the West tended to live in communities. Um, that was due in part to a colder climate because it was harder to live alone in, in a harsher, colder climate. So that was part of it. Uh, also, um, Western monasticism was more practical uh, Western monks didn't practice asceticism or withdrawing from society and material possessions, and they didn't do that just for the sake of doing it. It wasn't asceticism for asceticism's sake. Uh, they emphasized productive work as well as a devotional life. And so um, it started to gain popularity. Uh, there were respected church leaders like Jerome and Augustine who both practiced uh, were monks for part of their lives and wrote about it and praised the, the virtues of it in their writing. Uh, but probably the man who did the most to promote monasticism in the West was Benedict of Nursia. Uh, and there are still Benedictine monks today, right? That's, um, and so the thing that he did uh, was that he um, created what's called Benedict's Rule, and so he wrote down these rules for how, uh, how life as a monk should go, what community life for the monks should look like. And so uh, desert monks had survived off nothing but bread and salt and water, and they slept on the ground. Uh, but Benedict allowed his monks to drink wine. They had two cooked meals a day. They had a bed and a pillow. Uh, that doesn't mean that he was a softie, that but uh, his monks... Uh, 
you know, they, they withdrew from the desires of the flesh in different ways. For example, they were required to take uh, vows of poverty, a vow of chastity, and absolute obedience to the abbot, which would be the leader of the community, right? Uh, once they joined the monastery, they joined it for life. So Benedict's rule divided monks' days into times of study and worship and work. So there was this rhythm for life in, in a Benedictine um, monastery. And so uh, the first they study. So during their study time, they usually copied parts of the scripture and other important books by hand. And the emulation of this practice uh, in monasteries all across Europe eventually had a huge role in preserving the Bible and other great books of Western civilization. So one of the reasons that we have uh, the scriptures in as faithful a form as we do is because these monks took great care to copy the scriptures by hand. Um, and so they had times of study, they had times of worship, eight times a day they would pray. Uh, since their prayer times consisted mostly of re reciting the Psalms, most monks came to know all the Psalms by heart. And then they had uh, their, the other thing that was work. They had time divided out for work. Uh, also, that eight hours a day um, prayer thing uh, was known as praying the hours or the daily office. And so it was every hour uh, on the day, throughout the day. And, uh, and so the bell would ring in, in the monastery on whatever you were doing, whether it was work or whatever, you would stop and you would go to the chapel and you would pray and then they would go back to their labor, right? Back to their work. So uh, Pacomius, who was another um, kind of a predecessor to Benedict, he believed in hard work. And so it's interesting because during this time in history, manual labor was looked down on. Uh, and so Benedictine monks served as a model for the rest of society because they combined both the life of intellect with a really egalitarian work ethic. And so no monk saw himself as better than anyone else, and every monk had to take turns doing every job in the monastery. And so, uh, so they grew their own food. They were self-sufficient. Monasteries actually, many of them grew wealthy by selling the surplus that their farms and orchards produced. Uh, Benedict's rule provided a blueprint then for monastic life because it was simple, it was reasonable, and it could be replicated almost anywhere. And so by the end of Benedict's life, there were several monasteries under his control, and then within 50 years of his death, his Benedictine monasteries had been founded in England, in Germany, and France. And by the year 1000, there was a Benedictine monastery in nearly every community in Western Europe. So it really spread and really became an important part of church life. Now, this begs the question, was monasticism a good thing for the church? And uh, like most everything else, it had its strengths and it had its weaknesses, Maybe its single greatest weakness was that it promoted a two-tier system within the church. Ordinary lay people who lived in the quote-unquote secular world were seen as less spiritual than monks who devoted their entire lives to God and followed the, again, quote-unquote, higher calling of chastity, poverty, and obedience. And so during the Protestant Reformation, 
which will happen like almost a thousand years later. Uh, Martin Luther would explicitly abandon this two-tier system by leaving the monastery. He had been a monk, so he leaves the monastery and he marries a former nun. And uh, Luther's teaching that any vocation can be sacred if it is done to the glory of God really recaptured uh, an important biblical truth. And so one of the weaknesses of monasticism was that it created kind of a caste system within the church. And you can even see remnants of this still, right? Um, it's more pronounced like in the Catholic church where, you know, you go to the priest for, for confession and he, you know, so there, that, you know, so the priest is really close to God and, and his, you know, but you see, you see it even within, um, well, even, even at Summit, right? There are people who think, well, you know, I really need to have the pastor pray for me because he's super spiritual. And, and man, I, I, I love to pray with and for people. And I know that God hears and responds to prayer, but it's not because I'm a pastor, right? That you have the same access to God that I do, that Pastor Mel does, that Kim does, that, you know. And so uh, that was a real negative that monasticism brought into the church because it created this kind of idea that there's a hierarchy that these folks are, have a, you know, they have access to God that the rest of us don't. Uh, one of the positives, um, we don't want to kind of completely write it off. In a dark, troubled time, mo uh, monasteries often functioned as a little lighthouses of Christian uh, civilization, so to speak. Monks developed better farming techniques. They kept scholarship alive. Like I said, they copied precious manuscripts. They copied the scriptures. We're, we're responsible for that. They opened schools that spread education uh, during what's become known as the Dark Ages. They were teaching people to read and write. Um, they founded hospitals. They took the gospel deep into pagan lands as missionaries. Um, maybe their most um, notable achievement was the tremendous number of quality church leaders that they produced during this time. Nearly all of the major church leaders of the Constantinian and medieval eras were monks at some point in their lives. Uh, and so uh, today, we would probably see it as unhealthy that so many Christians during this time prefer to withdraw from the world rather than engage with the world. Um, and there certainly are some dangers that go along with that kind of mindset and monks had some spiritual blind spots, uh, but so do we, right? And so um, people from this era uh, would probably be able to see, like the monks might be able to see our blind spots better than we can, right? Even though we're, you know, because context makes a big difference. Uh, so the, the strongest proof that it was valuable, though, uh, is the kind of people it produced. Um, I want to talk about two men. Um, Oh, also, this is a really interesting and cool thing. Uh, a lot of people who were admitted into uh, the monasteries were not Christians when they came to the monastery. Because the monasteries offered an education, it was a way for you to learn to read and write. Also, they had food, right? The, the, you know, the monasteries were self-sustaining, and so it would be a place where you could go and, you know, get three hots in a cot, so to speak, and learn how to read and write, which was pretty attractive. And so people would go into the monasteries, enter monastic life, even though they were not followers of Christ. And then while they were there, the monks would teach them the gospel and baptize them, right? And so people, we, we don't think of 
monastic life as evangelical, but in that way, they were leading people to Christ as well, which is really pretty cool. Uh, but a couple of men uh, who were significant during this time period. Any questions, by the way? Any thoughts on this stuff? I, 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 I know that there's a whole lot of stuff that I'm trying to get through, but I don't want to uh, neglect to have some good discussion too because we, we actually learn better when we dialogue than if you just listen to me. And so uh, there's part of my... My part of me that cringes inside because I'm doing a whole bunch of talking and not a whole lot of dialoguing. So any thoughts or questions or anything that you might have before we jump into John Chrysostom? Good? All right. So let's talk about John Chrysostom. Uh, he was from the East. So uh, he was called, his nickname was Golden Mouth. Uh, because he was a really gifted speaker and orator. Uh, he was born into a wealthy family in 347 BC or AD in the city of Antioch. And he was trained as a lawyer. Um, but after becoming a Christian at the age of 21, he left his legal practice. He renounced all of his wealth and he moved into the mountains of Syria and lived in a cave for six years. But eventually, uh, he, he was in poor health, and so that forced him to come back down from the mountain. Uh, and so when he came back down from the mountain, he was ordained as a pastor in his hometown of Antioch at the age of 39, and he gained a reputation as a powerful preacher. Um, one, of the, one of the things that's uh, notable of him is that he rejected the idea of the allegorical interpretation of Scripture, which was really kind of popular at that time. He rejected that idea. Uh, he believed that the most important question to ask of the Bible was what did the author of the text intend it to mean to his original audience? And that is a huge thing because it has informed and become a, a pillar of uh, solid biblical um, interpretation and solid biblical hermeneutics from this time forward. So he was very instrumental in that. Um, John's preaching eventually caught the emperor's attention. And uh, about 10 years into his ministry, he was appointed the chief bishop of Constantinople, which was the capital of the Roman Empire in the east. And that was a pretty, pretty lavish job, pretty cush job. Uh, but John brought a monk's simplicity to it. And so he sold off, sold off all the luxury items in the bishop's palace, and he used the proceeds to feed the hungry. Um, he also used his pulpit to criticize the corruption that was prevailing in the church and the ostensibly, quote, Christian society that had, that had grown up in Rome. Uh, and so... Um, here's, here's one of, the, uh, one of his, the things he was quoted as saying, the gold bit on your horse, the gold circlet on the wrist of your slave, the gilding on your shoes mean that you are robbing the orphan and starving the widow. When you have passed away, each passerby who looks upon your great mansion will say, how many tears did it take to build that mansion? How many orphans were stripped? How many widows were wronged? How many laborers deprived of their honest wages? Even death itself will not deliver you from your accusers. And so he did not pull any punches when it came to uh, criticizing the opulence and, um, and wealth and really what he 
considered greed of the Roman culture uh, and of what was Christian culture at that time. Um, and, you know, anyway, so his attacks uh, on the rich made, made him some enemies in pretty high places. Uh, in particular, the emperor's wife was offended by him because uh, she thought that he was aiming his preaching at her. Uh, so maybe rather than getting angry with John, she should have t- taken it up with God, but who knows. Uh, but she was upset uh, because she thought he was preaching at her. And she succeeded in having him accused and convicted of a long list of trumped-up charges, and he was exiled from the city of Constantinople. Uh, But the people of the city were outraged, and they were ready to riot uh, until the order was reversed. And so if John had wanted to, he could have, you know, incited the crowd and really created chaos in Constantinople. Uh, But... Instead, he chose to leave the city without a fight. Um, but while he was in exile, he took up the pen. And so he, rather than preaching from the pulpit, he started writing his accusations and his, leveling his, uh, you know. So he reached more people through his writing than he ever had through his preaching. Uh, and the Bishop of Rome became a fan of his and lobbied the emperor to let him return but instead, the emperor banished him even further from the city to the shores of the Black Sea. Uh, but John never made it there. His health had already been failing before that. And um, he, uh, he died on his way to the, the, the Black Sea where he had been exiled. Uh, but his last words were this, glory be to God for all things. And so uh, he was one of the great Um, monks of that era. And then secondly, in the West was Augustine of Hippo. Um, And probably if you've been around the church anytime at all, you have heard someone reference Augustine or quote Augustine at some point. Um, He was born in 354 in the town of Tagaste, North Africa. Uh, His dad was a pagan and his mom was a Christian. Um, And she prayed for him that he would come to know Christ. And when he was a young man, his mother was so persistent and so concerned for his salvation um, that her priest, her pastor, eventually reassured her, uh, ma'am, it cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. Like he, you know, just was saying, look, God's going to hear your prayers. I mean, so she was. uh, And so as a young man, Augustine received a good education and was set up for a privileged life. Uh, He was a spiritual seeker, and he studied many of the philosophies of his day in the search for truth. Um, During this period, he actually, he saw Christianity as simplistic and didn't take it seriously until he moved to the city of Milan um, because he accepted a job there as a professor in a university. He was a professor of rhetoric. And so in Milan... Uh, he came to know the bishop of Milan at that time, whose name was Ambrose. And Ambrose was a very intellectually uh, astute man. He was a very intelligent man, and his preaching reflected that. And so his sermons, uh, August, Augustine loved to listen to his sermons because they were, they were sharp, right? Because he was like, this guy's smart. Um, and so 
Ambrose, because of his intellect and his knowledge of the scriptures, he was able to resolve a lot of Augustine's intellectual problems with Christianity. And that kind of uh, made him a little more curious. Um, But he didn't come to Christ right away after that. Um, Even after he felt intellectually satisfied about Christianity, he found it very difficult to give up the life of pleasure that he was living. Uh, He had been a frequent uh, customer of brothels since his teens. He had a live-in concubine in his home in Milan with whom he had a son. Uh, he, uh, He would later write that he would pray during this period of his life, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Uh, And so after a couple of years of wrestling in that way, of being divided within himself, uh, he had a conversion experience that he wrote about and it's it's been, um, that he's kind of known for. He says that sitting in a garden, he heard a child's voice singing, uh, tole lege, tole lege, which means take up and read, take up and read. Uh, And so he took that as a sign that he was supposed to read the Bible, to read the scriptures. And so he opened his Bible, and according to him, it fell open to Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, uh, which in those verses, the Apostle Paul commands his readers to live as in the daytime, putting away sexual immorality and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh. And so... Upon reading those words, Augustine finally resolved that he needed to make a hard break with the world. He broke up with his concubine. He gave up his teaching job. Uh, And his mother, Monica, lived just long enough to see him be baptized. And so uh, after his baptism and then his mother's death, he moved back to his hometown in Africa where he spent some time living as a monk in a monastic community. Uh, Eventually, the, the, the church in the town nearby, the Church of Hippo, uh, which that's why he would become known as Augustine of Hippo, they needed him. They wanted him to be their pastor. Uh, uh, historical accounts say that they almost forced him <laughs> into ministry. Um, the congregation literally pushed him to the front of the church to be consecrated as a priest. Um, And so then, for the remaining 40 years of his life, he would serve that church, first as a priest, and then as a bishop, and eventually as a writer of many books. He wrote, his output is voluminous, um, and most of his writings have survived to the present day. They are a treasure for the church. It's really, really uh, profound and and foundational Yeah, so for someone who had just wanted a quiet monastic life, most of his writings either provoked controversy or were the result of great controversy. The the most famous, and it was his first book, is called The Confessions, um, and it ranks as one of the greatest autobiographies of all time. Uh, I would definitely recommend it if, if you're interested more in Augustine and really in some church history and the development of Christian theology, I mean, all of it. It's just, it's incredible book. Um, in it, he describes uh, his profound restlessness before he came to Christ. He talks about all of that. I mean, so a lot of what we know about Augustine really comes from first-person testimony because that's one of the things that he writes about a lot in, in Confessions is how he came to know Christ, how he came to faith, Uh, The first paragraph in the book includes a line that gets quoted a lot. 
It's, and it's this, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You may have heard that before. Our hearts are restless or our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. That's Augustine. Um, and so he, uh, he talks about his conversion. He talked about a profound awareness between the divided nature of human will um, maybe it was because of his own struggle with sexual sin. He, you know, he, he not only had lived in, in, in experienced that, but then he would go on to write about it in profound ways. He believed that the will is completely helpless to desire what God desires apart from the grace of God. Um, yeah. And so he, he didn't believe that, that man was capable of doing anything that God commands unless God first gives him the grace to do it. And so Augustine was uh, adamant about a, our complete dependence upon God. And um, so after Constantine rose to power and persecution stopped, the debate shifted to whether ordinations performed by bishops um, were valid or who had compromised during the last persecution were valid. Uh, so all of that's happening around this same time. And so then there's this debate that happens and Augustine gets called in for this. So there's an, a North African group and we're kind of shifting gears a little bit. They were called the, the Donatists. Um, they, they said that uh, they were not valid, those baptisms of of performed by bishops who had compromised. So what they mean by that is people who were bishops and had baptized folks, but then under persecution, these bishops renounced Christ, denied Christ in the face of death, right? So they, rather than be martyred, they capitulated. And so now the argument was that anybody that they had baptized, that those baptisms were invalid. Okay, and so, um, so there was a group from Northern Africa that were arguing that that was the case, that those, these baptisms were not valid because a church, the church must be a church of saints, not sinners. Uh, Augustine disagreed with them, uh, and so he cited Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, and he argued that the power of the sacraments doesn't depend upon the virtue of the person administering them. It depends upon the faithfulness of God. Um, and so he argued that if a sacrament wasn't valid unless the person performing it was pure, that Christians would live in constant doubt as to the validity of their baptism. Being baptized by a pastor who later renounces their faith doesn't mean your baptism didn't count. And so what Augustine essentially was saying was that, look, it's the faith of the person who's being baptized that matters, not the, not, not, you know, not the faith of the person who's doing the baptizing. Um, and he won the debate. Uh, that didn't mean that Donatism disappeared. Um, the, the, this particular group of people, the Donatists, despised the priests who had, been com who had compromised with Rome because they despised uh, Rome. They were upset about Roman occupation of their homeland. And so they wanted to weaken Rome's power in northern Africa. And so they started staging terrorist attacks against Rome and against Roman targets and that kind of thing. In response to that, Augustine became the first theologian in history to develop the concept of a just war. And uh, a war was just, Augustine said, if number one, it was waged by a properly instituted authority. Number two, it was for a just cause. Number three, that it was only as a last resort and number four, that it was pursued with the right motive. 
and so, yeah. And so those were some of the things that Augustine did. In fact, we could probably go on. Um, but in, in the present day, uh, not, not our present day, but Augustine writes this. In the present age, the earthly and heavenly cities coexist side by side, but are irreconcilable. The earthly city is built on love of self and it is temporary, but the city of God, on the other hand, is eternal and is built on love for God. And he writes this uh, uh, as kind of in a, well, as, as an example, an image of how we might live and overcome the world. And that, and, and so this is some of the, uh, well, some of, some of what he uh, some of the treasure, I guess, I would say that he leaves for us as as Christians who um, have the the ability to look back and to read and to see and to follow some of his uh, example. When he died, he died in the year four thirty, uh, and barbarians um, were at the gates of his hometown, and many people in his city had starved to death in a siege. Uh, shortly after he died, the city was overrun and the Roman Empire was destroyed. But his theology served as a bridge between the classical world and the Middle Ages. And like I said, uh, had a huge impact on Christianity and on Christian society moving forward. Um, And it cast a vision for a Christian society that would be in the world, but not of it. That idea of two cities. There's the city of the world and the city of God and how we ought to live within the world like we can be in the world, but not of it. And that idea would then be picked up uh, by the reformers when we get to Martin Luther and John Calvin. and all. So that idea would be picked up by them. In fact, John Calvin would write and refer to the idea of a city within the city that the, the church within a city should function as a city of its own, that it should create, uh, and, and not separate from, like it should seek the, the prosperity of the city in which they lived, but that God's people should provide for one another in ways that create uh, economic opportunity, in ways that take care of the needs of the poor, in ways that... Um, you know, uh, create community and, and family and all of those kinds of things. So these are ideas that, that are rooted in scripture, right? But that Augustine begins to, to kind of, uh, flesh out a little bit. And, and, and then it's, again, it's picked up by the reformers later on and becomes a big part of what would, you know, the reformation movement would look like. In fact, um, you can see remnants of it, in Western Pennsylvania, because the, the Amish got much of their ideas about what it means to live in community from those same things. We see the evolution of it. It's still, it's still around. Uh, so anyway, uh, now some of the things about uh, simplicity and, you know, the ways that, so anyway, we could talk about maybe that later. That's, 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 couple thousand years into the future at this point, right? But, uh, but it's still around. And so over the next few centuries, it would primarily be the monks that would carry this vision with them, uh, and they would carry it to the farthest corners of Europe, to the farthest corners of the known world at that time, copying and recopying Augustine's writings. Um, and they began the long, arduous process of evangelizing um, 
the barbarians, right, the people of Western Europe, and rebuilding Western civilization from the ground up. Because what happens uh, when Rome is overthrown by the, the German tribes, the barbarian tribes from Western and Northern parts of Europe, um, Roman society, Western culture, so to speak, disappears uh, and were cast into the Dark Ages. And so again, it would be the monks that would carry literacy and copy the scriptures and really uh, that would be the thing that sustained the church through the dark ages which is pretty incredible so that's what happens with the rise of monasticism but along with that uh, we kind of are getting into medieval the medieval period of history which is when we we get a pope for the first time Uh, and so the rise of the papacy begins to happen and so so Gregory, he's a man who had been elected bishop of Rome. Um, he was well qualified to be pope. Uh, he had been born into a noble Roman family, had served as ambassador to the imperial city of Constantinople, but he didn't want the job. And so he actually went and hid in a forest outside of Rome, and they had to go and find him uh, because it was a terrible time to be pope. Rome was under siege uh, from invaders. Uh, It was also being racked by a plague that had claimed the life of the previous bishop of Rome. And so all Gregory wanted to do was to be left alone and to live in his monastery. Um, But reluctantly, he embraced his duty. uh, And so he went back into Rome and and, uh, assumed his position as, as the bishop of Rome. And even though he didn't want to be pope, he would become one of the most influential popes in history. Um, so there had been bishops of Rome before Gregory, right? Uh, and of course, the Roman Catholic Church would say that would go all the way back to St. Peter, right? It would go all the way back to the Apostle Peter. Um, but So there had been bishops of Rome before this. Um, but Gregory uh, marked a turning point in the history of the church in the West, Uh, By the time he died, he served as pope or served as bishop of Rome for 14 years. And by the time he died, he had expanded the authority of the pope and the Western church more than almost any other pope in history before him or since him. Um, In 14 years, he brought order to the Western church. He wrote thousands of letters to bishops all over the world. He sent out hundreds of monks as missionaries. He organized church doctrine into a theological system that is still embraced by the Roman Catholic Church today. Uh, That's a whole lot of accomplishment for a guy who didn't even want to be Pope. Um, So, Gregory is considered the first medieval Pope. Like I said, there had been... um, bishops in Rome before him, uh, but none of them had wielded the authority or power that Gregory was able to. Uh, And so this changes, you probably could say, uh, and really uh, the papacy has changed since then, but this would, this would be, this would mark the beginning of what we might call, I don't know, Depends on your view of history, but what we might call the high water mark for the papacy, right? Like the the peak of its power, because because be, having that much power isn't necessarily a good thing. So we might not want to call it a high water mark, but this is the this is the 
the initial, this is the beginning of the peak of papal power. We might say it in that way. Um, so he, he greatly contributed to making the papacy a position of global importance. Um, so, uh, but I, like I said, he wasn't the first pope in history. So the part of the question that we have to answer is, where did the idea that the Bishop of Rome had special authority and responsibility over all of the other churches come from? Uh, so to answer that question, we have to go back to the second century. So beginning in the second century, so uh, this would be in the 100s, right? Because, you know, whatever century it is, you got to subtract one, to, you know. So anyway, uh, so in the 100s, uh, beginning in the second century, the Bishop of Rome's power and authority had grown steadily for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, there was a natural significance because the city of Rome was the capital of the empire. Rome was a large and important city, and for the first 300 years of church history, it was the capital, like I said, of the Roman Empire. So it was natural that a bishop from an important city would have a lot of influence. So that was part of it. Uh, number two was that the church in Rome had a, a really uh, strong reputation for orthodoxy. They, uh, at the great doctrinal councils of the church during the reign of Constantine, Roman bishops gained a reputation for being reliably orthodox. And so since the Western church never suffered from internal theological divisions over the Trinity or the nature of Christ, uh, that, those kinds of things were going on quite a bit in the East, the, but the, the West was pretty stable in that regard. There was, there was agreement over the Trinity. There was agreement over the nature of Christ as being both 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Uh, and so because of that, Rome gained more of a leadership role in the church at large because there was stability um, theological stability in the West that wasn't there in the East at the time. And so from the time of Constantine on, the Bishop of Rome was considered to be the first among equals. That was the way that it started out at first, that there was, there was a level of authority there, like I said, because of the natural position of being in Rome and because uh, they, they held influence and sway because of their theological, um, you know, strength and reliability and so they became known as the first among equals and the council of constantinople uh, officially recognized that leadership role in the year 381 so the influence of the bishop in rome starts in the 100s but it's like 200 years later in 381 that it becomes like that that uh, that leadership is officially recognized then the third thing that creates the rise of the papacy is the, the separation of the churches in the East and the West. Um, after Constantine moved the capital to Constantinople in 330, the West went into political decline. And so then um, barbarian invasions began in the 5th century, and Roman bishops were often better leaders than the political leaders in the city. And so since these church leaders, the Bishop of Rome, often uh, held more sway than the political leaders, uh, for example, in the year 410, Pope Innocent I negotiated with the Visigoths and saved Rome from being burned down. So it wasn't you know, the political leaders, it was the leaders of the church in Rome that protected the city. And then in 452, 
Leo I became known as Leo the Great by persuading Attila the Hun not to destroy Rome. And then in 455, Leo also managed to persuade the Vandals not to destroy the city. And so it's these kinds of things that give rise to uh, the, the Bishop of Rome having a lot of authority and a lot of sway uh, in the church. So the, competent, uh, the competence many popes displayed increased the prestige and the power of that office. Um, and so there became this popular perception that God had given the Pope, right, the, the Bishop of Rome, a special grace. Um, and that uh, a theory called the Petrine, the, the, the Petrine theory began to develop. And that's the theory that, that the Bishop of Rome gains his authority straight from the Apostle Peter, right? Uh, so that theory was built on Christ's promise to build his church upon this rock, which was interpreted to be the Apostle Peter himself. And Peter had been given uh, primacy over the other apostles. That's what this theory says. And so since church tradition said that Peter became the first Bishop of Rome, he was said to have passed down that authority down to his successors through apostolic succession all the way to today, right? Where the Pope in Rome says that he, you know, holds that office because he is in a line of succession from St. Peter, right? From the Apostle Peter. So he has that apostolic authority. Uh, in the year 445, the Emperor Valentinian III officially endorsed this theory by declaring that the Bishop of Rome had become a universal authority on spiritual matters. That's a mouthful. So there would not be an official separation between the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church in the East. Uh, that's going to happen later in what's known as the Great Schism. And so at this point in history, it still wouldn't be known as the Roman Catholic Church. That's going to happen later. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, it's beginning to function in that way. Um, uh, especially when, you know, the emperor of Rome declares that this guy is the head of all the churches, you know. And so uh, what's going to happen is actually that the, the, the bishop in Constantine, it, or in Constantinople, he's going to take umbrage at that. You know, like, you know, you're not, you're not the boss of me, <laughs> right? And uh, there'd be some theological things, and we'll talk about it more, but there would be some things that led up to, like I said, what's known as the Great Schism. Um, but yeah, that's, this is certainly the, um, maybe we could call it proto-Catholicism, right? And so, uh, so by the time Gregory became Pope, going back to Gregory, uh, the, who kind of established this office in the way that we understand it to function in medieval times, the, the height of its power. So by the time he became Pope, that was in the year 590, uh, the authority of the papacy was well established. Uh, but Gregory, like I said, wielded that authority more effectively than anybody before him and maybe even anybody since. Um, Bruce Shelley, again, uh, he wrote this. He said, Gregory combined great executive ability with warm sympathy for human need. So he became Pope during a, a siege of Rome. 
Um, Gregory oversaw the distribution of food to the needy. He oversaw the rebuilding of the city's infrastructure and the training of military troops. And later he negotiated peace uh, with the Lombards, who were the group that was uh, in had the city under siege, and he would go and um, negotiate with them directly. He also did the work of an evangelist. He managed to convince the Lombard leaders to convert from Arianism to Orthodoxy. Um, And once peace was restored in Rome, Gregory was so popular that he became the de facto political leader of Rome. Um, The people of Rome called him God's consul. And uh, so his combining of political and spiritual authority would set a precedent, an important precedent for future popes. Um, And so Gregory, though, uh, despite his newfound political authority, continued um, to take his spiritual life and his spiritual tasks very seriously. Um, He was very diligent as a pastor and as a shepherd. He wrote thousands of letters to bishops all over the world. He wrote a book on the principles of Christian ministry, uh, he was a great administrator. He helped the church run budget surpluses for several consecutive years, right? So he took good care of the church's finances. He accomplished all of that in spite of being in poor health. Uh, he had gout. Um, he also was very humble uh, by all accounts. He was the first monk ever to become pope, and he chose to lead a simple life and rejected the title although not the authority, (laughs) of universal bishop, preferring rather to call himself uh, a servant to the servants of God. Um, His greatest legacy, though, is probably his passion for foreign missions. Um, There's a story that's told of Gregory coming across a group of blonde-haired, blue-eyed boys for sale one day in a slave market in Rome. And after asking the slave dealer where the boys were from, Um, Gregory was told that they were angels from um, Deary, which is the old Roman word for England. And so he was, Gregory was moved by that. He corrected the slave trader saying, no, they are not, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I I mispronounced it. So angles, so like Anglos, right? They were Anglos from Deary. Uh, But Gregory told the slave trader, no, they're not Anglos, they are angels. And while they may be from Deary, they will be saved, Deira, which is the Latin word for from the wrath of God. And so then, um, and and so Gregory then commissioned uh, a Benedictine monk who we've already talked about a little bit named Augustine. Um, Actually, no, sorry. I wrote, even wrote it in my notes so I wouldn't make that mistake. Uh, not Augustine of Hippo or Augustine of Hippo, but a different monk named Augustine uh, to be the first, church's first official missionary to England. And so he was so moved by uh, what he had seen, these young boys that he had seen uh, in the slave trade um, that he commissioned this young monk, Augustine, to be the first missionary to England. Augustine was able to convert the king of Kent and became the, uh, and then he became the first archbishop of Canterbury. So uh, those are kind of Gregory's positive accomplishments. Um, he was probably one of the most good-hearted popes in history, um, but he had some pretty bad theology that set some bad precedents that endure to this day. So... Um, In terms of theology, 
Um, Gregory laid the groundwork for medieval Roman Catholicism. So like I said, we might call this kind of proto-Catholicism. His views relied heavily upon church tradition. And Gregory considered church tradition to be equal to Scripture. And that's something that you'll even hear today in the Roman Catholic Church. That church tradition is equal to Scripture. That was one of the things that would become one of the sticking points for the Great Reformation. That's why you hear, in, I don't know if you're familiar with, there were Latin terms, sola fide, sola Christe, sola scriptura. These would be things that the, the reformers would, would you know, uh, be they would be rallying Christ for them. And what that means is sola fide is faith alone. And sola Christe is Christ alone. And sola scriptura is scripture alone. And so um, that was one of the things that would become a rallying cry for the reformers, that it is the scriptures alone that are, are our rule for faith and conduct, not the traditions of man. Even though they may be the traditions of the church, they cannot be the things that govern us in terms of doctrine and in terms of faith and conduct. Um, But Gregory didn't hold that view. Uh, He held what has become the traditional Catholic view, which is that tradition is equal to Scripture. And so he relied heavily on church tradition. He relied heavily on his own personal experience. And that set a course for Western theology for the next thousand years. Um, Gregory softened Augustine's views on original sin. Augustine um, had what we, would, what we would consider an orthodox view, a biblical view on original sin. Uh, Gregory softened that somewhat. He believed that humankind had inherited Adam's tendency to sin, but not Adam's guilt. He also rejected the idea that saving grace was irresistible. Instead, he taught that people could cooperate with grace and therefore, at least to some extent, could merit their salvation. Uh, This would become important because uh, the idea that being baptized, receiving communion, and you know, uh, you know, participating in confession. Uh, not only would these become practices in the Roman Catholic Church, but they would become like there's they believe them to be salvific. That you're saved through doing those things, um, and so. Um, yeah, so that's gonna again, that's gonna shape Catholic theology for perpetuity. Um, Gregory also believed that baptism only washed away the sins a person had committed prior to conversion. Sins committed after baptism had to be dealt with through penance, a process that involves repentance, confession to a priest, and meritorious works to make up for the sin. So again, this is where we're really starting to get into this idea that we can uh, earn our salvation, so to speak. The more serious the sin, the more a person must do to make up for them. So do you, do you understand and do you see the importance of this, that it, it begins to erode what Christ has done? So what Jesus did on the cross is good enough to save me, but it's not enough to keep me saved. I've got to do things to, to pay for my sin. Uh, and so again, this is going to become a real sticking point when it gets time for the Reformation. Uh, so the more serious the sin, the more a person must do to make up for them. If the person fails to fully deal with their sin in this life, they will have to make up for it in purgatory. Um, 
which is not to be confused with hell, the place of damnation for the unrepentant. Purgatory is a place of purification for saints whose sanctification in this life was incomplete. Uh, and so this is the time when all of those kind of Catholic doctrines begin to come into to, to play. Uh, a lot of that originates with Gregory. Now, Gregory didn't invent the idea of purgatory, uh, but he did add to it the idea that believers' time in purgatory could be shortened by the intercession of those who had accumulated merit for their good works. So if I've done more good than I've done bad, then I've got a surplus and I can pray and give some of that merit to people who are in purgatory and they can get out. It's like, you know, get out early for good behavior, only not their good behavior, mine, right? So, uh, and so, uh, but so these were not biblical ideas. These weren't, these weren't ideas that were supported by scripture. These were just ideas that had grown as part of church tradition. Um, and again, when when the Reformation comes into play, these are the things that are going to be challenged. Because what, one of the things that happens is that this kind of theology, this kind of uh, thinking, then leads to uh, the selling of indulgences. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with that practice in history, but instead of, so what happens is, well, maybe I could just, instead of having to do you know, say this many Hail Marys and, and do some community service or whatever. Uh, could I just make a donation to the church and then that, that'll be enough to get my sins forgiven? Well, that's what starts to happen. And then even beyond that, well, if the church has a building project, we want to build a cathedral, we got to fund this thing. Well, we can just sell indulgences. I'll just write a, I'll, I will write out a, a certificate that says that your sin is forgiven because you donated to the church building. Uh, and this gets really, I mean, number one, it's, it's not a, it's not, it's not the way this works in the first place. <laughs> but number two, it really gets out of hand because guys are like, hey, how much, How much for a murder, right? I mean, that's really, that's really where this ends up. And it becomes seriously abusive within the church. And again, I mean, no one's writing out certificates anymore, but you still kind of see some of this kind of thinking when, for example, uh, you know, how many, how many mob bosses in history have been really devout and they give money to the church and they do... That's because there's this idea that we can purchase it. And, and this goes, this isn't new and it doesn't even really originate with the Catholic Church. Like if you go all the way back into the scriptures, where the apostles are, are laying hands on people and they're being uh, healed and they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. And Simon the sorcerer says, hey, how much can I pay you to get that same power that you have? And they rebuke him for that, right? But there's always been this idea whether it's by monetary means or whether it's by our good works or whether it's that we can somehow earn our salvation, that we can somehow do something to save ourselves. And scripture is clear that that, that is not the case at all, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, as the, as the apostle Paul would say, and that it's only Christ and it's only the work that Christ has done for us 
that can purchase our salvation. And so we can see how these kinds of, um, these kinds of ideas are, are, you know, creating problems within the church and eroding the purity of the gospel and eroding the truth of the gospel and really the beauty of the gospel. Uh, and so, um, Gregory wrote and said this, our holy martyrs are ready to be your advocates. They desire to be asked indeed, if I may say so, they entreat that they may be entreated. Seek them as helpers of your prayer. Turn to them that they, might, that they may protect you in your guilt. And so this is part of that idea of, you know, if you've ever wondered why Catholics pray to the saints, this is why. So there was this idea that I'm not good enough to go straight to Jesus, right? My, my sin is too great for me to go straight to Jesus. I don't have enough, I'm, I'm not holy enough. So the saints who have, they've achieved sainthood, they were holy. Well, I can, what I can do is I need to go between. So I, I can pray to the saint and the saint will pray to the Lord for me because they can go to God. That's how that whole idea starts. Uh, and it's uh, what's known in Roman Catholicism as the treasury of the saints. So they believe, again, because of this merit thing, they believe that there's this merit that the saints have accumulated that we can access that, and then they can go to God for us. Um, which, again, uh, what Scripture would tell us is that Jesus tore the veil that separated us from God, and now because of him we have access to the Father. Hebrew, the book of Hebrews says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that we will receive mercy. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.